Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Yeah, so one of the scenes that really got me going when I started writing this book was something that happened on Memorial Day 1923 at the Wardman Park Inn fashionable hotel in Washington where the attorney general lived, there was a, a gunshot. Somebody, and There was a man dead from a gunshot wound inside the suite that the attorney general lived in. And the first law enforcement officer in the scene was none other than the head of what became the FBI, a man named William J. Burns, which if you think about it, is a pretty unusual circumstance to have the head of the FBI investigating a local homicide. I'll read it from my book here a little bit. Inside the bedroom of suite 600E, Burns found the body of a man named Jess Smith, 50, crumpled at the foot of two beds. In his right hand was a 32 caliber revolver. Single bullet had plowed through his head. This was clearly a matter for the local authorities. Burns knew better than to summon the police immediately. The situation called for discretion, for few in Washington had known as much as the man who now lay before him in a bloody heap. And the book just sort of unfolds from there. (laughs) Thanks a lot. That's great. Yeah, Guys, welcome all you wiretappers out there. You just heard a little bit out of a new book out, Crooked, and it's going to tell us all the more than we ever wanted to know about a variety of things. If you remember back when you were a kid, you heard about the Teapot Dome scandal. There was this corrupt administration under Warren G. Harding, one of the president, and the founding of the FBI came out of this, and just a lot of other interesting stories. The attorney general, the FBI was investigating their own attorney general, and he was crooked as heck, as you could tell. That was his suite. So welcome, Nathan Masters. Thanks a lot, Nathan, for coming on the show. Oh, thanks for having me, Gary. So, what a little bit about your background. You were in public TV. Yeah. You got a background in public TV. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, I've hosted a public television show called Lost LA. It explores Los Angeles history through the archives. Been doing that since 2016. So, I have a lot of experience digging through archival materials for compelling stories to share them with readers and viewers. So now this is your first nonfiction book. How'd you find this story? Was there some little archive that you were perusing through and said, you know, this is a pretty, I do this myself. I say, you know, this could be expanded into something. This is interesting. Did you do that or how'd that happen? Yeah. Yeah. It started out exactly that way. This was about 2018. So I don't know whether it was that five years ago. I don't want to get too much into politics, but I was trying to think of a story that could speak to the present day a little bit, like some untold story from the past. I started looking into corrupt presidential administrations. Of course, there's no administration that has bigger reputation for corruption than that of Warren G. Harding. I started looking into Harding a little bit, and I realized there wasn't a lot there. There's no real evidence that he personally was culpable in any of the corruption that went on under his regime. Of course, he was probably, you could hold him responsible for letting it happen, right? He was the buck stopped there, right? But I came across the story of 
a young freshman senator from Montana who started investigating the attorney general, who happened to be Warren G. Harding's political mentor. He was the kingmaker of politics in Ohio. Basically, he served as Warren Harding's campaign manager, got him the presidency, and then as his reward, took the office of attorney general. This is a man named Harry Doherty. So the senator started investigating Doherty, discovered that the Department of Justice was being used as a political weapon to silence Doherty's and Harding's political enemies, was also maybe getting close to figuring out that Doherty was using it to enrich himself. This is the 1920s, the Roaring Twenties, the Prohibition. The entire nation was rife with graft, and the Attorney General realized there was an opportunity there. But just as that senator was getting a little too close to the truth, he found himself indicted on trumped-up charges. And when I came across that, I thought, there's a good story there. Yeah, really. I mean, this sounds like Richard Nixon and John Mitchell. John Mitchell was his campaign manager and then got rewarded as being the attorney general and then really put a rubber stamp on all those activities of wiretapping and going after political enemies. A lot like that, too. I tell you what, folks, everything old is new again. Clear up to the present (laughs) day. Whatever you can accuse Biden of doing bad stuff with the attorney general's office and weaponizing it. That's a new word. You can accuse Trump of doing that. I mean... You can accuse about every president of weaponizing the attorney general's office to greater or lesser extent, but it's topical today. There's no doubt about it. You make a really good point. There's nothing unusual about a president installing a political crony as attorney general. I mean, Bobby Kennedy, right? <laughs> the, the brother of the president. <laughs> yeah. Nothing unusual. And the thing, what was unusual is that Doherty used the office to enrich himself, right? Uh, As all of these attorney generals who got in trouble. They use it to protect the president. Mm-hmm. They crossed the line legally to do that. Doherty was using it for his own benefit. So is this how the Bureau investigation got started? How did that come about? Folks, this is the precursor of the FBI. And reading the book and my own knowledge, I know that the Secret Service was really the only federal policing kind of a function that there ever had been out of really out of the civil war they started working counterfeiters and there was organizations that did counterfeiting and the secret service were the early people that went after the old black handers at the turn of the century they were the only federal law enforcement there was like that so how did then the bureau develop out of this Yeah, that was the case until 1909, the end of Theodore Roosevelt's presidency. The Secret Service was being pulled in too many directions. There were more federal statutes on the books that needed to be enforced, more federal crimes that needed to be investigated. And as you know, Theodore Roosevelt was a great reformer, crusader against corruption, antitrust violations. So he and his attorney general, who was actually a relative of Napoleon Bonaparte's, (laughs) Charles Bonaparte, created what became the Bureau of Investigation and then later the Federal Bureau of Investigation. It was around the 1920s, it was growing in size. It had grown in response to, first of all, World War I, chasing down anti-war dissenters, and then in the Red Scare that followed World War I, when J. Edgar Hoover, who was then John Edgar Hoover, orchestrated a series of raids against political radicals and led to hundreds of deportations. I was reading in your book, when they first were started, Hoover was like the man known that had all the secret files and the guy named William J. Burns was the detective. He was a real famous detective, had the Burns Detective Agency and then brought back in. How did that all work? Yeah. 
Yeah, Billy Burns was the most famous detective in all of America. He was called America's Sherlock Holmes. Mm-hmm. He had eclipsed Alan Pinkerton, for instance, as America's most famous detective. And people, I mean, he was so good at at solving a crime with like little scraps of evidence <laughs> that that people thought he was working magic. And then, yeah, on the other hand, John Edgar Hoover was a former library catalog at the Library <laughs> of Congress, actually, where yeah, he was just really good at organizing information. And as you know. Organizing information is, yeah, you have to do that if you're going to want to keep track of crime and solve crime. So he started organizing information on criminals and suspected subversives the same way he organized information about books. The pair worked pretty well together, even if they didn't really quite get along. (laughs) Interesting. Interesting. So now, I guess my question is, did the mob get involved in this? The mafia is always looking out, whether it be the Jewish mob or the National Crime Syndicate during those times, those years, and they work together, especially in the Northeast. Did they get involved in any of this? They always sense that there's an opening where there's corruption going on. Yeah. Well, the story takes place 1923, 1924. It's really towards the beginning of Prohibition, and Prohibition was just this huge opportunity for organized crime. And after, more locally, many American cities were cracking down on vice operations, right? Prostitution, especially. And then just a few years later, the temperance crusaders did organized crime a great favor by banning alcohol. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So there were some connections here. I don't really get into it in the book, but Harry Doherty's son, he had a troubled son, Draper Doherty, who was just a chronic alcoholic, seemed to court trouble. He moved to New York and sought out Arnold Rothstein, who was, I think his reputation is for turning organized crime into like a really big business, right? He fixed the 1919 World Series. I mean, you can't get bigger than that. (laughs) (laughs) So you had the situation where the son of the attorney general was working for Rothstein's insurance company, sitting in regularly at Rothstein's poker table. Of course, Draper Doherty was blackmailed several times. People thought, and Rothstein, I'm sure, thought, hey, this is a great opportunity. I can use this as leverage over the attorney general if I ever get in trouble. Yeah, interesting, interesting. So back to your story. Now tell us a little more yeah. about it. how does this develop? Yeah. So you mentioned Teapot Dome. Teapot Dome is really the genesis of this. My book isn't about Teapot Dome necessarily, which was an oil scandal, right? It was a scandal over the Interior Department granting drilling rights to private oil companies owned by Harry Sinclair and Edward Doheny. I mean, the Interior Secretary accepted hundreds of thousand dollars in bribes. That was a great scandal when it started to come out. Where my story comes in, this young senator, Burton Wheeler from Montana, noticed that, I mean, he wasn't the only one, but he noticed that Harry Doherty as attorney general wasn't doing anything in response to these bombshell allegations. I mean, you had a Senate committee uncovering staggering evidence of crime at the highest levels of the federal government, and the attorney general wasn't getting involved. The Bureau of Investigation didn't even open a case file. Hmm. So... Wheeler thought, well, maybe there's something there. Maybe the attorney general is involved. Maybe he's complicit. And if not, we got to investigate to figure out why he's not doing anything. So Wheeler figured there's got to be something going on here. If the attorney general isn't personally complicit, there's got to be some reason why he's not getting involved. So he convinced the Senate to convene a committee that would investigate the Department of Justice and the attorney general personally. And Wheeler called a bunch of colorful witnesses. He called bootleggers. He called everybody that Doherty had associated with. And it turned out it, Doherty didn't associate with preachers. It wasn't a clean bunch. <laughs> well, that's pretty amazing. Line up a witness against the attorney general of the United States. Could yeah. he not like quash this? What was like the chain of command wasn't such that he could just sit on it? 
He tried. So he was a political mastermind. Doherty was great at manipulating people. He collected intelligence on anybody, on friends and enemies alike, and just stored it ready, knowing at some point he might deploy it for his benefit. He tried to shut this down. He couldn't shut it down in the Senate. So when he realized that the Senate was going to go ahead with this and, and that Wheeler was going to lead an earnest investigation into the Justice Department, Doherty sent Bureau of Investigation agents out all over the country to find compromising information on the senator and something to blackmail him with to silence him. <laughs> and eventually he did find something. <laughs> well, we don't want to give everything away in the book. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> so I guess the paint a picture of Washington at the time. You said, was everybody corrupt? Was it in less like local cities at the time out of prohibition? Is like all public officials were somewhat corrupt, this corrupting influence of prohibition of everybody wanted to drink, but it was illegal to do and it made it okay to break the law? Was that the climate in Washington as well as New York and Chicago and everybody else? Yeah, the general climate. Yeah, yeah. You might as well break the law. Everybody's doing it. You might as well get your cut. In Washington, not everybody was corrupt. I mean, in fact, in Harding's cabinet, there were some, actually the treasury secretary who oversaw prohibition enforcement, Andrew Mellon, was really beyond suspicion. He was a multimillionaire many times over, didn't really have any personal reason to get involved in graft. But under, beneath him, the prohibition unit that enforced prohibition was just rife with corruption. Mm -hmm. I'll bet you that 90% of prohibition officers were on the take. <laughs> now, that wasn't Doherty's domain. And in, in fact, when Doherty first got into office, he started to get involved in prohibition a little bit, helping bootleggers find a loophole through the Volstead Act by withdrawing what was considered legal medicinal whiskey. He and his henchman, Jess Smith, the man who in the, at the beginning of the book was found dead, they initially helped bootleggers get permits to withdraw this liquor legally, and then they could sell it on the black market. But Doherty, he didn't control prohibition enforcement as attorney general, and he kind of got scared. He's like, I can't really meddle in another cabinet officer's affairs because Mellon was one of the few clean guys in Washington at the time. I see. I see. I know how that works in real life. <laughs> I'm sure you do. Yeah. <laughs> you got a guy that's real squeaky clean. If you're the corrupter, you better stay away because he's going to rat you out. And so now I know how that works. That's interesting. That's uh, Yeah. But Doherty realized that, well, even if I can't get involved in prohibition, and that's a lot of money was there, right? Yeah, really? He could monetize the powers of his office still. At the time, there were like numerous private corporations that were in litigation with the federal government over like wartime fraud. There was a lot of fraud during World War II where companies had overcharged the federal government. There's this one notorious case where I think a company charged, a defense contractor charged half a billion dollars and never delivered a single war plane to the front in, in Europe. And these companies were locked in litigation with the federal government. And Doherty realized, hey, if we can come to some sort of settlement, yeah. these companies, they might want to help me grease the wheels. And he ultimately, it was discovered that he'd accepted bribes to do that. Interesting. Is there any other kind of interesting little stories that you remember out of this book without giving too I mean, much away? Yeah, without giving too much away. I mean, there's definitely the story of J. Edgar Hoover's rise. I mean, one of the great ironies of this story is that Burton Wheeler, the senator, was trying to clean up 
the Justice Department. He was trying to prevent it from ever being used as a political weapon again. We know that didn't work out yeah. all, all that well. But one of the great ironies is that one of the direct results of his crusade was John Edgar Hoover became the head of the Bureau of Investigation. He actually took over for Billy Burns, was sort of put in the role on a probationary basis. Mm-hmm. And Doherty's successor as attorney general, a really upstanding lawyer named Harlan Fisk Stone, who later became chief justice of the Supreme Court, yeah. Hoover somehow convinced Stone, attorney general Stone, that he was on the side of justice and the rule of law and restraint within the FBI and appointed him, appointed Hoover director on a permanent basis. Of course, he didn't know how permanent, right? I mean, really Hoover could. would remain in office <laughs> under, I don't know what, a dozen presidents or something. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Hoover, he was a force to be reckoned with when it came to establishing a bureaucracy, a bureaucratic empire, if you will, and then defending it against all attackers for the rest of his life. He was a master at that. (laughs) He certainly was. He probably picked up a few lessons under Harry Doherty. Yeah, Yeah, probably did. (laughs) Yeah. All right. Well, Nathan Masters, I really appreciate you coming on the show. The name of the book, I'm going to have to read this, Crooked, The Roaring Twenties Tale of a Corrupt Attorney General, a Crusading Senator, and the Birth of an American Political Scandal. So you guys, you probably ought to check that book out. It's an interesting book and gives you a different sort of a view of this time frame during Capone and really the birth of the modern law enforcement and the modern mafia and modern government, really, from the turn of the century on into World War II. That time between World War I and World War II was a time of great upheaval and change in everything. So it's a fascinating story. Thanks a lot, guys, for listening. And thanks, Nathan, for coming on the show. And don't forget, I ride motorcycles. And if you're out there in a car, look out for motorcycles because you don't see us sometimes. And if you have a problem with PTSD, if you've been in the service, go to the VA website. There's a hotline there. If you have a problem with drugs or alcohol, our good friend and former mobster, Anthony Ruggiano, has a hotline and he works in treatment down in Florida. So get on reformgangstersguy.com and you can get that hotline and talk to Anthony Ruggiano. So thanks a lot, guys. And one last time, Nathan, thanks so much for coming on. Thank you, Gary.